Sense and Sensibility, Chapter Five. No sooner was her answer dispatched than Mrs. Dashwood indulged herself in the pleasure of announcing to her son-in-law and his wife that she was provided with a house and should incommode them no longer than till everything them no longer than till everything were ready for inhabiting it. They heard her with surprise. Mrs. John Dashwood said nothing, but her husband civilly hoped that she would not be settled far from Norland. She had great satisfaction in replying that she was going into Devonshire. Edward turned hastily toward her on hearing this and, in a voice of surprise and concern, which required no explanation to her, repeated, Devonshire, are you indeed going there so far from hence? And to what part of it? She explained the situation. It was within four miles northward of Exeter. But it's a cottage, she continued. But I hope to see many of my friends in it. A room or two can easily be added. And if my friends find no difficulty in traveling so far to see me, I'm sure I will find none in accommodating them. She concluded with a very kind invitation to Mr. and Mrs. John Dashwood to visit her at Barton. And to Edward, she gave one with still greater affection. Though her late conversation with her daughter-in-law had made her resolve on remaining at Norland no longer than was unavoidable, it had not produced the smallest effect on her to the point which was principally intended. To separate Edward and Eleanor as far as from being as far from being her object as ever, and she wished to shrew Mrs. John Dashwood by this pointed invitation to her brother, how totally she disregarded her disproprietion of the match. Mr. John Dashwood told his mother again. And again, how exceedingly sorry he was that she had taken a house such a distance from Norland as to prevent his being of any service to her in removing her furniture. He really felt conscientiously vexed on the occasion, for the very exertion to which he had limited the performance of his promise to his father was by this arrangement rendered impracticable. The furniture was all sent round by water. It chiefly consisted of household linen, plate, china, and books, with a handsome pianoforte of Marianne's. Mrs. John Dashwood saw the packages depart with a sigh. She could not help feeling it hard that Mrs. Dashwood's income would be so trifling in comparison to their own. She should have any handsome article of furniture. Mrs. Dashwood took the house for a 12 month. It was ready furnished and she might have immediate possession. No difficulty arose on either side in the agreement and she waited only for the disposal of her effects at Norland and to determine her future household before she set off for the West. And this, as she was exceedingly rapid in the performance of everything that was interested to her, was soon done. The horses which were left by her husband had been sold soon after his death and an opportunity now offering of an earnest advice of her eldest daughter. For the comfort of her children, she had consulted only her own wishes. She would have kept it, but the discretion of Eleanor prevailed. Her wisdom too limited the number of their servants to three, two maids and a man, with whom they were speedily provided from amongst those who had formed their establishment at Norland. The man and one of the maids were sent off immediately into Devonshire to prepare the house for their mistress's arrival. For as Lady Middleton was entirely unknown to Mrs. Dashwood, she preferred going directly to the cottage to being an advisor at Barton Park. And she relied so undoubtedly on Sir John's description of the house as to feel no curiosity to examine her, it herself until she entered it on her own. Her eagerness to be gone from New Orleans was preserved from diminution by the event evident satisfaction of her daughter-in-law and the prospect of her removal, a satisfaction which was but feebly attempted to be concealed under a cold invitation to her to defer her departure. 
Now was the time when her son-in-law's promise to his father might, with particular propriety, be fulfilled. Since he had neglected to do it on first coming to the estate, their quitting his house might be looked on in the most suitable period for his accomplishment. But Mrs. Dashwood began shortly to give over every hope of the kind and to be convinced from the general drift of his discourse that his assistance extended no further than their maintenance for six months at Norland. He so frequently talked of the increasing expenses of housekeeping and of the perpetual demands upon his purse, which a man of any consequence in the world was beyond calculation exposed to, that he seemed rather to stand in need of more money himself than to have any design of giving money away. In a very few weeks from the day which brought Sir John Middleton's first letter to Norland, everything was so far settled in their future abode as to enable Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters to begin their journey. Many were the tears shed by them in their last adieus to a place so much beloved. Dear, dear Norland, said Marianne as she wandered alone before the house on the last evening of their being there, when shall I cease to regret you? When learn to feel a home elsewhere, oh, happy house, could you know what I suffer in now viewing you from this spot, from where perhaps I may view you no more, and you, ye well-known trees, but you will continue the same. No leaf will decay because we are removed, nor any branch become motionless, although we can observe you no longer. No, you will become the same, unconscious of the pleasure or the regret you occasion, and insensible of any change in those who walk under your shade. But who will remain to enjoy you? Chapter six. The first part of their journey was performed in too melancholy a disposition to be otherwise than tedious and unpleasant. But as they drew towards the end of it, their interest in the appearance of a country which they were to inhabit overcame their dejection, and a view of Barton Valley as they entered it gave them cheerfulness. It was a pleasant, fertile spot, well wooded and rich in pasture. After winding along it for more than a mile, they reached their own house, a small green court was the whole of its demands in front, and a neat wicked gate admitted them into it. As a house, Barton College Cottage, though small, was comfortable and compact, but as a cottage it was defective, for the building was regular, the roof was tiled, the window shutters were not painted green, nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. A narrow passage led directly through the house into the garden behind. On each side of the entrance was a sitting room, about 16 feet square, and beyond them were the were the offices and the stairs. Four bedrooms and two garrets formed the rest of the house. It had not been built many years and it was, it had not been built many years and it was in good repair. In comparison to Norland, it was poor and small indeed, but the tears which recollection called forth as they entered the house were soon dried away. They were cheered by the joy of the servants on their arrival and each for the sake of the others resolved to be, to appear happy. It was very early in September, the season was fine, and from first seeing the place under the advantage of good weather, they received an impression in its favor, which was of material service in recommending it to their lasting approbation. The situation of the house was good. High hills rose immediately behind and at no great distance on each side, some of which were open downs, the others cultivated and woody. The village of Barton was chiefly on one of these hills and formed a pleasant view from the cottage windows. The prospect in front was more extensive. It commanded the whole of the valley and reached into the country and beyond. The hills which surrounded the cottage terminated the valley in that direction. Under another name and in another course, it branched out again in between two of the steepest of them. <clears throat> With the size and furniture of the house, Mrs. Dashwood was upon the whole well satisfied. 
For though her former style of life rendered many additions to the latter indispensable, yet to add and improve was a delight to her. And she had this time ready money enough to supply all that was wanted of greater elegance to the apartments. As for the house itself, to be sure, she said, it's too small for our family, but we will make ourselves tolerably comfortable for the present, as it is too late in the year for improvements. Perhaps in the spring, if I have plenty of money, as I dare say I shall, we may think about building. These parlors are both too small for such parties of our friends, and I hope to see often that I hope to see often collected here. And I have some thoughts of throwing the passage into one of them with perhaps a part of the other. And so to leave the remainder of that for the other, for an entrance, this with a new drawing room, which may be easily added, and a bedchamber and a garret above will make it a very snug little cottage. I could wish the stairs were handsome, but one must not expect everything, though I suppose it would be no difficult matter to widen them. I shall see how much I am beforehand with the world in the spring, and we will plan our improvements accordingly. In the meantime, till all of these alterations could be made from the savings of an income of 500 a year by a woman who never saved in her life, they were wise enough to be contented with the house as it was, and each of them was busy in arranging their particular concerns and endeavoring by placing around them their books and their possessions to form themselves a home. Marianne's pianoforte was unpacked and properly disposed of, and Eleanor's drawings were fixed to the walls of their sitting room. In such employments as these, there were they were interrupted soon enough after their breakfast the next day by the entrance of their landlord, who called to welcome them to Barton and to offer them every accommodation from his own house and garden in which theirs might, present, might at present be deficient. Sir John Middleton was a good-looking man, about 40, he had formerly visited at Stanhill, but it was too long ago for his young cousins to remember him. His countenance was thoroughly good-humored, and his manners were as friendly as the style of his letter. Their arrival seemed to afford him real satisfaction, and their comfort to be an object of real sol solitude to him. He said much of his earnest desire of their living room in the more sociable terms with his family, and pressed them so cordially to dine at Barton Park every day till they were better settled at home, that through his entreaties were carried to a point of preservance preserverance beyond civility. They could not give offense. His kindness was not confined to words, for within an hour after he left them, a large basket full of garden stuff and fruit arrived from the park, which was followed before the end of the day by a present of game. He insisted, moreover, on conveying all of their letters to and from the post for them and would not be denied the satisfaction of sending them his newspaper every day. 
Lady Middleton had sent a very civil message by him, denoting her intention of waiting on Mrs. Dashwood as soon as she could be assured that her visit would be of no inconvenience. And as this message was answered by an invitation equally polite, her ladyship was introduced to them the next day. They were, of course, very anxious to see a person on whom so much of their comfort at Barton must depend, and the elegance of her appearance was favorable to their wishes. Lady Middleton was not more than six or seven and twenty. Her face was handsome, her figure tall and striking, and her address was graceful. Her manners had all of the elegance in which her husband's wanted, but they would have been improved by some share of his frankness and warmth, and her visit was long enough to detract something from their first admiration by shewing that, though perfectly well-bred, she was reserved, cold, and had nothing to say for herself beyond the most commonplace inquiry or remark. Conversation, however, was not wanted, for Sir John was very chatty, and Lady Middleton had taken the wise precaution of being with their eldest child, a fine little boy of about six years old, by which means there was one subject always to be recurred by the ladies in this case of extremity, for they had to inquire his name and age, admire his beauty, and ask him questions which his mother answered for him while he hung about her and held down his head to the great surprise of her ladyship who wondered at his being so shy before company as he could make noise enough at home. On every formal visit, a child ought to be of the party by way of the provision for discourse. In the present case, it took up to 10 minutes to determine whether the boy were most like his mother or father, and in what particular he resembled either. For, of course, everybody differed, and everybody was astonished at the opinions of the others. An opportunity was soon to be given to the Dashwoods of debating on the rest of the children, and Sir John would not leave the house without securing their promise of dining at the park the next day. Chapter 7. <clears throat> Barton Park was about half a mile from the cottage. The ladies had passed near it in their way along the valley, but it was screened from the other view at home by the projection of a hill. The house was large and handsome, but the Middletons lived in a style of equal hospitality and elegance. The former was for Sir John's gratification, the latter for that of his lady. They were scarcely ever without some friend staying with them in the house, and they kept more company of every kind than any other family in the neighborhood. It was necessary to the happiness of both, for however dissimilar in temper and outward behavior, they strongly resembled each other in total want of talent and taste, which combined their employments, unconnected with such as society produced within a very narrow compass. Sir John was a sportsman. Lady Middleton, a mother, he hunted and shot, and she humored her children, and these were their only resources. Lady Middleton had the advantage of being able to spoil her children all the year round, while Sir John's independent employments were in existence only half the time. Continual engagements at home and abroad, however, supplied all of the deficiencies of nature and education, supported the good spirits of Sir John, and gave exercise to the good breeding of his wife. Lady Middleton piqued herself upon the elegance of her table and of all of her domestic arrangements. And from this kind of vanity was her greatest enjoyment in any of their parties. But Sir John's satisfaction in society was much more real. He delighted in collecting about him more young people than his house would hold. And the noisier they were, the better he pleased. He was a blessing to all of the juvenile part of the neighborhood, for in summer he was forever forming parties to eat cold ham and chicken out of doors, and in winter his private balls were numerous enough for any young lady who was not suffering under the insatiable appetite of 15. 
The arrival of a new family in the country was always a matter of joy to him, and in every point of view, he was charmed with the inhabitants he had now procured for his cottage at Barton. The Miss Dashwoods were young, pretty, and unaffected. It was enough to secure his good opinion, for to be unaffected what was all that a pretty girl could want to make her mind as captivating as her person. The friendliness of his disposition made him happy in accommodating those whose situation might be considered in comparison with the past as unfortunate. In shewing kindness to his cousins, therefore, he had the real satisfaction of a good heart, and in settling a family of females only in his cottage, he had all of the satisfaction of a sportsman, for a sportsman, though he esteems only those of his sex who are sportsmen likewise, is not often desirous of encouraging their taste by admitting them to a residence within his own manor. Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters were met at the door of the house by Sir John, who welcomed them to Barton Park with unaffected sincerity. And as he attended to them in the drawing room and repeated to the young ladies the concern which the same subject had drawn from him the day before at being unable to get any smart young men to meet them. They would see, he said, only one gentleman there besides himself, a particular friend who was staying at the park, but who was neither very young nor very gay. He hoped they would all excuse the smallness of the party and could assure them it would never happen so again. He had been to several families that morning in hopes of procuring some addition to their number, but it was moonlight and everybody was full of engagements. Luckily, Lady Middleton's mother had arrived at Barton within the last hour, and she was a very cheerful, agreeable woman. He hoped the young ladies would not find it so dull as they might imagine. The young ladies, as well as their mother, were perfectly satisfied with having two entire strangers of the party and wished for no more. Mrs. Jennings, Lady Middleton's mother, was a good-humored, merry, fat, elderly woman who talked a great deal, seemed very happy, and was rather vulgar. She was full of jokes and laughter, and before dinner was over, had said many witty things on the subject of lovers and husbands, hoped they had not left their hearts behind them in Sussex, and pretended to be to see them blush whenever they did or did not. Marianne was vexed at it for her sister's sake, and turned her eyes toward Eleanor to see how she bore these attacks. With an earnestness with which gave Eleanor far more pain than could arise from such a commonplace rivalry at Mrs. Jennings. Colonel Brandon, the friend of Sir John, seemed no more adapted by resemblance or manner to be his friend than Lady Middleton was to be his wife, or Mrs. Jennings to be Lady Middleton's mother. He was silent and grave. His appearance, however, was not unpleasing in spite of his being, in the opinion of Marianne and Margaret, an absolute old bachelor, for he was on the wrong side of five and thirty. But though his face was not handsome, his countenance was sensible, and his address was particularly gentlemanlike. There was nothing in any part of the party which could recommend them as companions to the Dashwoods, but the cold insipidity of Lady Middleton was so particularly repulsive that in comparison of it to the gravity of Colonel Brandon and even to the boisterous mirth of Sir John and his mother-in-law was interesting. Lady Middleton seemed to be roused to enjoyment only by entrance of her four noisy children after dinner, who pulled her about, tore her clothes, and put an end to every kind of discourse except what related to themselves. In the evening, as Marianne was discovered to be musical, she was invited to play. The instrument was unlocked and everybody prepared to be charmed, and Marianne, who sang very well at the request, went through the chief of the songs which Lady Middleton had brought into the family on her marriage, and which perhaps had lain ever since in the same position on the pianoforte, for her ladyship had celebrated that event by giving up music, although by her mother's account she had played extremely well, and by her own was very fond of it. Marianne's performance was highly applauded. Sir John was loud in his admiration at the end of every song, and as loud as his conversation with the others 
while this, every song lasted. Lady Middleton frequently called him to order, wondered how anyone's attention could be diverted from music for a moment, and asked Marianne to sing a particular song, which Marianne had just finished. Colonel Brandon alone, all, of all of the party, heard her without being enraptured. He paid her only the compliment of attention, and she felt respect for him on the occasion, which the others had reasonably forfeited by their shameless want of taste. His pleasure in music, though it amounted not to that ecstatic delight which alone could sympathize with her own, was esteemable when contrasted against the horribly insensibility of the others. Horrible insensibility of the others. And she was reasonable enough to allow that of a man of five and thirty might has, have well as outlived the acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. She was perfectly disposed to make every allowance for the colonel's advanced state of life, which humanity required." Chapter eight. Mrs. Jennings was a widow with an ample jointure. She had only two daughters, both of whom she had lived to see respectably married, and she had now therefore nothing to do but to marry all the rest of the world. In this promotion of this object, she was zealously attentive or zealously active as far as her ability reached and missed no opportunity of projecting weddings amongst all of the young people of her acquaintance. She was remarkably quick in the discovery of attachments and had enjoyed the advantage of raising the blushes and the vanity of many a young lady by insinuations of her power over such a young man. And this kind of discernment enabled her soon after her arrival at Barton decisively to pronounce that Colonel Brandon was very much in love with Marianne Dashwood. She rather suspected it to be so on the very first evening of their being together from his listening so attentively while she sang to them. And when the visit was returned by the Middletons dining at the cottage, the fact was ascertained by his listening to her again. It must be so. She was perfectly convinced of it. It would be an excellent match for he was rich and she was handsome. Mrs. Jennings had been anxious to see Colonel Brandon well married ever since her connection with Sir John first brought him to her knowledge. And she was always anxious to get a good husband for every pretty girl. The immediate advantage to herself was by no means inconsiderable, for it supplied her with endless jokes against them both. At the park, she laughed at the colonel and at the cottage at Marianne. To the former, her raillery was, her raillery was probably, as far as it regarded only himself, perfectly indifferent. But to the latter, it was the first incomprehensible. And when its object was understood, she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or censure its impertinence. For she considered it as unfleeing reflection on the colonel's advanced years as on the forlorn condition of an old bachelor. Mrs. Dashwood, who could not think a man five years younger than herself, who could not think a man five years younger than herself, so exceedingly ancient, as he appeared to the youthful fancy of her daughter, ventured to clear, ventured to clear Mrs. Jennings from the probability of wishing to throw ridicule on his age. But at least, Mama, you cannot deny the absurdity of the accusation, though you must not think it intentionally ill-natured. Colonel Brandon is certainly younger than Mrs. Jennings, but he is old enough to be my father. And if he were ever animated enough to be in love, must have long outlived every sensation of the kind. It is too ridiculous. When, it, when is a man to be safe from such wit if age and infirmity will not protect him? Infirmity, said Eleanor. Do you call Colonel Brandon infirm? I can easily suppose that his age may appear much greater to you than my mother, but you can hardly deceive yourself as to his having the use of his limbs. Did not you hear him complain of a rheumatism? Is it not the commonest infirmity of declining life? My dearest child, said her mother laughing, at this rate you must be in continual terror of my decay, and it must seem to you a miracle that my life is extended to the advanced age of 40. 
Mama, you are not doing me justice. I know very well that Colonel Brandon is not old enough to make his friends yet apprehensive of losing him in the course of nature. He may live 20 years longer, but 35 has nothing to do with matrimony. Perhaps, said Eleanor, 35 and 17 had better not have anything to do with matrimony together. But if they should say by any chance happen to be a woman who is single at seven and 20, I should not think Colonel Brandon being 35 would have any objection to his marrying her. A woman of seven and 20, said Marianne after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. And if her home be uncomfortable or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the office's of a nurse for the sake of provision and security of a wife. In his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It would be a compact, compact of convenience and the world would be satisfied. In my eyes, it would be no marriage at all, but that would be nothing. To me, it would seem only a commercial exchange in which each wished to benefit of the expense of the other. It would be impossible to know. Impossible, I know, said Eleanor, to convince you that a woman of seven and 20 could feel for a man of 30 and five and anything near enough of love to make a consider a desirable companion for her. But I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife to the constant confinement of a sick chamber, merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, a very cold, damp day of a slight rheumatic feel in one of her shoulders. But he talked of flannel waistcoat, said Marianne. And with me, a flannel waistcoat is invariably connected with aches, rheumatisms, and every species of ailment that can afflict the old and feeble. Had he only been in a violent fever, you would not have despised him half as much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flushed cheek, hollow eye, and quick pulse of a fever? Soon after this, upon Eleanor's leaving the room, Mama, said Marianne, I have an alarm on the subject of illness, which I cannot conceal from you. I am sure Edward Ferris is not well. We have now been here almost a fortnight, and yet he does not come. Nothing but real indisposition could occasion this extraordinary delay. What else can detain him at Norland? Had you any idea of his coming soon, said Mrs. Dashwood. I had none. On the contrary, if I had felt any anxiety at all on the subject, it has been in recollecting that he sometimes shewed a want of pleasure and readiness in accepting my invitation. When I talked of his coming to Barton, does Eleanor expect him already? I have never mentioned it to her, but of course she must. I rather think you are mistaken, for when I was talking to her yesterday of getting a new grate for the spare bedchamber, she observed that there was no immediate hurry for it, for it was not likely that the room would be wanted for some time. How strange this is! What can be the meaning of it? But the whole of her behavior to each other has been unaccountable. How cold, how composed were their last adieus? How languid their conversations in the last evening of their being together? In Edward's farewell, there was no distinction between Eleanor and me. It was the good wishes of an affectionate brother to both. Twice did I leave them purposely together in the course of the last morning, and each time did he most unaccountably follow me out of the room. And Eleanor, in quitting Norland and Edward, cried not as I did, even now, her self-command is invariable. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society or appear restless and dissatisfied in it? Chapter 9. The Dashwoods were now settled at Barton with tolerable comfort to themselves. The house and the garden, with all the objects surrounding them, were now become familiar, and the ordinary pursuits which had given to New Orleans half its charms, were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than New Orleans had been able to afford since the loss of their father. 
Sir John Middleton, who called on them every day for the first fortnight and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement on finding them always employed. Their visitors, except for those at Barton Park, were not many, for in spite of Sir John's urgent entreaties that he that they would mix more in the neighborhood and repeated assurances of his carriage being always at their service, the independence of Mrs. Dashwood's spirit overcame the wish of society for her children, and she was re resolute in declining to visit any family beyond the distance of a walk. There were but a few who could be so classed, and it was not all of them that were attainable. About a mile and a half from the cottage along the narrow winding valley of Allenham, which issued from that of Barton as formerly described, the girls had, in one of their earliest walks, discovered an ancient respectable-looking mansion by reminding them a little of Norland, interested their imagination and made them wish, wish to be better acquainted with it. But they learnt on inquiry that its possessor, an elderly lady of very good character, was unfortunately too infirm to mix with the world and never stirred from home. The whole country about them abounded in beautiful walks, the high downs which invited them from almost every window of the cottage to seek the exquisite enjoyment of air on their summits were a happy alternative when the dirt of the valleys beneath shut up their superior beauties. And toward one of these hills did Marianne and Margaret one memorable morning direct their steps, attracted by the partial sunshine of a showery sky and unable longer to bear the confinement which the settled rain of the two preceding days had occasioned. The weather was not tempting enough to draw the two others from their pencil and their book, in spite of Marianne's declaration that the day would be lastingly fair and that every threatening cloud would be drawn off from their hills and the two girls set off together. They gaily ascended the downs, rejoicing in their own penetration at every glimpse of blue sky, and when they caught their faces, the animating gales of a high wind southwesterly, they pitied the fears which had prevented their mother and Eleanor from sharing such a delightful sensation. Is there any felicity in the world, said Marianne, superior to this? Margaret, we will walk here at least two hours. Margaret agreed, and they pursued their way against the wind, resisting it with laughing delight for about 20 minutes longer, when suddenly the clouds united over their heads and a driving rain set on full in their face. Chagrined and surprised, they were obliged, though unwillingly, to turn back, for, for no shelter was nearer than their own house. One consolation, however, remained for them, to which the exigence of, most, of the moment gave more than an than usual propriety. It was that of running with all possible speed down the steep side of the hill, which led immediately to their garden gate. They set off. Marianne had at first the advantage, but a false step brought her suddenly to the ground, and Margaret, unable to stop her, herself to assist her, was involuntarily hurried along and reached the bottom in safety. A gentleman carrying a gun with two pointers playing around him was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in the fall and was scarcely able to stand. And she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, took her up in his arms without further delay and carried her down the hill. Then, passing through the garden, the gate of which had been left open by Margaret, he bore her directly into the house, whither Margaret had just arrived, and quitted not his hold until he had seated her in a chair in the parlor. Eleanor and her mother rose up in amazement at their entrance, and while the eyes of both were fixed on him with an evident wonder and a secret admiration, which equally sprung from his appearance, he apologized for his intrusion by relating its cause in a manner so frank and so graceful that his person, which was uncommonly handsome, received additional charms from his voice and expression. 
Had he been even old, ugly, and vulgar, the gratitude and kindness of Mrs. Dashwood would have been secured by an act of attention to her child. But the influence of youth, beauty, and elegance gave an interest to the action which came home to her feelings. She thanked him again and again with the sweetness of an address which always attended to her, invited him to be seated. But to this he declined, said he was dirty and wet. Mrs. Dashwood then begged to know to whom he was obliged. His name, he replied, was Willoughby, and his present home was at Allenham, from whence he hoped she would allow him the honor of calling tomorrow to inquire after Miss Dashwood. The honor was readily granted, and then he departed to make himself still more interesting in the midst of a heavy rain. His manly beauty and more than common gracefulness were instantly the theme of general admiration, and the laugh which his gallantry raised against Marianne received peculiar spirit from his exterior attractions. Marianne herself had seen less of his person than the rest, for the confusion which crimsoned over her face on his lifting her up had robbed her the power of regarding him after their entering the house. But she had seen enough of him to join in all the admiration of the others, and with an energy which always adorned her praise. His person and air were equal to what her fancy had ever drawn for the hero of a favorite story, and in his carrying her into the house with so little, little previous formality, there was a rapidity, a rapidity of thought which particularly recommended the action to her. Every circumstance belonging to him was interesting. His name was good, his residence was in their favorite village, and she soon found out that all of his manly dresses, a shooting jacket, was the most becoming. Her imagination was busy, her reflections were pleasant, and the pain of a sprained ankle was disregarded. Sir John called on them as soon as he heard the next interval of fair weather that morning and allowed him to get out of doors, and Marianne's accident being related to him was eagerly asked whether he knew any gentleman of the name Willoughby at Allenham. Willoughby, cried Sir John, what, he is in the country? That is good news, however, I will ride over tomorrow and ask him to dinner on Thursday." You know him then, said Mrs. Dashwood. Know him, to be sure I do. Why, he is down here every year. And what sort of a young man is he? As good of a kind fellow as ever lived, I assure you. A very decent shot. And there is no bolder rider in England. And is that all you can say for him? Cried Marianne indignantly. <laughs> but what are his manners on more intimate acquaintance? His pursuits, his talents, and genius? Sir John was rather puzzled. Upon my soul, said he, I do not know much about him as to all that, but he's a pleasant, good-humored fellow, and he got the, he has the nicest little black pointer I ever saw. Was she out with him today? But Marianne could no more satisfy him as the color of Mr. Willoughby's pointer than he could describe to her the shade of his mind. But who is he, said Eleanor? Where does he come from? Has he a house at Allenham? At this point, Sir John could give more certain intelligence. And he told them that Mr. Willoughby had no property of his own in the country, that he resided there only while he was visiting the old lady at Allenham Court, to whom he was related, and whose possessions he was to inherit, adding, yes, 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 he is very well worth catching. I can tell you, Miss Dashwood, he has a pretty little estate of his own at Somerset. Besides, if I were you, I would not give him up to any younger sister in spite of all the tumbling downhills. Miss Marianne must not expect to have all the men to herself, Brandon will be jealous if she does not take care. 
I do not believe, said Mrs. Dashwood with a good, good humored smile, that Mr. Willoughby will be incommodated by his, by the attempts of either of my daughters towards what you call catching him. It is not an employment to which they have ever been brought up. Men are very safe with us. Let them be ever so rich. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man and one whose acquaintance will not be ineligible. He is a good sort of fellow, I believe, as ever lived, repeated Sir John. I remember last Christmas at a little hop at the park, he danced from eight o'clock till four without sitting down once. Did he indeed, cried, Mary, cried Marianne with sparkling eyes, and with elegance, with spirit? Yes, and he was up again at eight to ride to covert. That is what I like. That is what a young man ought to be. Whatever his pursuits, his eagerness in them should know no moderation and leave him no sense of fatigue. Ay, ay, I see how it will be, said Sir John. I see how it will all be. You will all be setting your cap at him now, and never you think of poor Brandon. That is an expression, Sir John, said Marianne warmly, which I particularly dislike. I abhor every commonplace phrase by, by which wit is intended, and setting one's cap at a man or making a conquest are the most odious of all. Their tendency is gross and illiberal, and if their construction could ever be deemed clever, time has long ago destroyed all of its ingenuity. Sir John did not much understand this reproof, but he laughed as heartily as he did, and then replied, I, you will make conquests enough, I dare say, one way or the other. Poor Brandon, he is already quite smitten, and he is very worthwhile setting your cap at, I can tell you, in spite of all of this tumbling about and spraining of ankles.' 